Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for listening to The Collective Podcast. My name is Josiah, and I actually get to lead the ministry here with a bunch of other incredible people. Collective is the ministry for young adults for Grace Church Bath Campus. Uh, I hope you find this conversation helpful in your relationship with God. And I also want to invite you to check out Collective in person. We meet every Thursday night at 7 o'clock at Grace Church Bath Campus. And you can find all the info you need on our Instagram account, GCM underscore Collective. Once again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Josiah. I'm the young adults pastor here. <laughs> That's all, everybody. Uh, I know what you're thinking. How many pastors have to be sick right now that we let this happen? Uh, you, you picked the wrong weekend to show up to church. Uh, let me tell you that. And to my surprise, no one is sick. This is a decision that somebody made. I have one goal today. It's not to get fired. We'll see how that goes. So uh, uh, let me tell you uh, a little bit about myself since I haven't met most of you. Uh, my favorite song in the world is Teenage Dream by Katy Perry. I feel like that's objectively correct. Uh, my favorite basketball team ever is the Toon Squad. <laughs> only, uh, only basketball team to feature both Michael Jordan and LeBron James and the leading scorer, Wiley Coyote. And, uh, and I'm married. That's the only thing more shocking than me standing here right now. Uh, this is a picture of my wife. She's what us youngins uh, consider a certified baddie. So you can look that up on your own time. <laughs> you can figure out what that means. Uh, and Sarah and I uh, and uh, all these guys over here and a bunch of others have the privilege of being able to lead collective young adult ministry. That's, uh, that's my job, and uh, it's, it's an absolute blast. Actually, do me a favor. Raise your hand if you are somewhere in the ages of 18 to 28-ish. Raise it. Yeah. So if you just put up your hand and we have not met and we haven't talked, uh, I would absolutely love to talk to you. Uh, I talk to guys uh, in that uh, age bracket all the time. They're always saying, you know, Grace is a big church. It's hard to meet people. You know, it's hard to find. And it's not that hard to meet people if you're involved with Collective. There's, there's, God is doing amazing things uh, every Thursday night and then around that community. And so I would really love to get you plugged in, whether you're, you know, whatever phase of life you're in, whatever, you know, whatever married, engaged, whatever, doesn't matter. We're just trying to hang out and uh, God's doing a lot over there. Um, so I am really stoked to be here. I don't know a ton of stuff <laughs> and uh, I think you'll figure it out really quickly. I'm not like the best, you know, speaker in the world, uh, but God has deeply, deeply, deeply changed my heart. And uh, I'm hoping that what can happen today is we all go on a journey together and figure out what, what God wants to say to us through, uh, you know, some some stories in the Bible, and uh, I, I'm, it's cool, because there's so many people, when, when I look out, there's so many people in this room uh, where the reason I've been able to uh, understand who Jesus is, is largely through you, so I think this is, this is great, so this is going to be really, really fun, I better not screw it up. This week, we're going to be wrapping up a series called Because He Lives, and the basic premise of the series is this, how would we live our lives uh, if we really, really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, I have this phrase I'd like to say, every Every problem is a gospel problem. And so everything that's happening in our lives is an area that Jesus is trying to work his way into. So if we really believed that Jesus risen from the dead, how would that affect our mental health? How would that affect our relationships? How would that affect, you know, a bunch of us are working a job that, that you hate. God bless you, Dairy Queen workers, you know. Uh, how would that affect the way I approach that kind of thing? Um, and, and how would that affect every moment of my day? And if you missed the past couple weeks from the GOAT, Big Jeff, uh, you need 
need to check that out on, on podcast or YouTube or whatever. They've been like really, really good weeks. Uh, so you definitely want to check that out. But to wrap up this series, here's the question I want to ask for today because I, I, I think it's important and I, I don't know that we could uh, conclude a series like this without asking this question. How do I hold on to authentic faith when my life is falling apart? That's what I want to ask. How do I hold on to authentic faith in Jesus when my life is falling apart? And here's why I want to ask this question. Because I know that for many of us in this room right now, our lives are falling apart. Uh, whether that's a, a struggle with anxiety or depression that, it, that is so deep that getting through a regular day feels impossible. That the biggest problems in your life are not problems that happen on the outside. The biggest problems in your life are problems that happen up here. And in navigating life feels impossible. For many of us, uh, a romantic relationship is falling apart. Whether that was a, a dating relationship that you thought that was going to go all the way, whether that's a, a broken engagement, or whether that's a marriage that's crumbling. How does God show up in the midst of that? For many of us, uh, this past year, past couple of years, we lost a dream. What happens when I, when I finally open the business I've been working to and it's declining? What happens when I finally land my dream job after 25,000 years of schooling and I get laid off? What happens when I'm pursuing this pathway and somebody's standing in my way? What happens when I lose a dream? And then I know like a bunch of us, we just feel alone. Like I know this personally. What's the point of navigating through life if you don't feel like you have people to navigate it with you? Uh, what, what happens when, when your friends, you don't feel seen by them or your family, you don't feel like you belong to anything. And, and then many of us are, are wrestling with uh, illness, are wrestling, uh, wrestling with uh, you know, physical conditions and, and are even wrestling with death. I, I have a friend right now um, and his wife is in a serious battle with cancer. Where's Jesus in that? You know, how, how does uh, faith show up in, in a situation like that? And so if you're, uh, you feel like you're in the thick of it right now, I, I really think this conversation is for you. Um, and if you uh, are, let's, uh, if you're not in the thick of it, here's why you still need to tune in. Um, Jesus gives a lot of promises and a lot of those promises are very optimistic. One of the promises is this, in this world, you will have trouble. Uh, so at one point or another, our lives are going to come crumbling. And it's in those moments that we need to be able to ask the question, what does faith mean in the midst of all this? What does Jesus mean in the midst of this? And how does the resurrection of Jesus affect what going, I'm going through right now? What does authentic faith look like? Here's why I say authentic faith, okay? That, that word is important. I think in our culture, the way we have defined faith uh, does more harm than it does good. Uh, any Hobby Lobby enthusiasts in the room? Any Hobby Lobby fans? Uh, so a few years ago, my mom went through uh, a Hobby Lobby phase, a very aggressive Hobby Lobby phase. And every time I would show up to my parents' house, everywhere I looked, every turn you made, every room of the house had a quote from the Bible and or Hobby Lobby, you know? So you like walk into one room and it's like, believe. And you walk into another room, it's like, trust. And you walk into another room, it's like, let go and let God. And you walk into another room, it's nothing stronger than family. I didn't have the heart to tell my mom that that was a poster from Fast and Furious. Uh, my, my mom doesn't know who Vin Diesel is, so we just let that one slide. Uh, my my mother-in-law uh, is like this too. My mother-in-law 
mother-in-law is just like the sweetest lady ever. She's like very, very innocent. And so she had, uh, you know, those like freestanding letters where like you can, you know, they're all standing up on their own. She has these freestanding letters that say faith, hope, love. And my favorite thing to do whenever I go over to her house is to take the P from hope and hide it. <laughs> and so she's like, it's just sad. That's terrible. And she's like, where did you put it? I'm like, I, I don't know. You have to find it. You know? So I, I think when most of us think of uh, faith or the word faith, we think Hobby Lobby faith. We think of something that's like cliche. We think of something that uh, maybe is a little naive. We think of something that's inspirational and ethereal and maybe hopelessly optimistic. Actually, I think many, what many of my friends would say is they would say, Josiah, Christian faith or even religious faith is just denying reality. That's all that is. Faith is the opium of the masses. It's just denying the way, it's wishful thinking, it's unrealistic thinking. It's your inability to process the situation and you're calling it faith. I remember the first time I noticed that this is how a lot of us interact with faith. I was 11 years old. And uh, my grandfather passed away and he had lived in our house. And so I, I was really close with him. And so we were at the funeral and it, uh, you know how like at a funeral, like the viewing, like everyone lines up and every single person in attendance has the opportunity to say something encouraging and or stupid to the family. You know, so like everyone's lined up and I'll never forget the types of things people were saying to me, an 11 year old kid to deal with the situation. They say, uh, you know, Josiah, I'm so sorry for your loss but you should be happy for him because he's in heaven now. Josiah, I'm so sorry for your loss, but he's dancing with the angels right now, which if ever there was a Hallmark card, you know, that if you work for Hallmark, there you go, that one's for free. Uh, Josiah, I'm so sorry for your loss, but he's happier there and he's happier now than he was here with you, you know? And it, here's the thing, those things are true. Those things are true. My, my grandfather's in heaven. But those truths were presented to me in a way to get me to ignore my emotions and avoid processing the reality that he's gone, that I don't get to talk to him anymore, uh, that he's not, he's not gonna be living in my house anymore. And maybe you've heard Christians process pain like this. Uh, you know, man, I'm so broken because of my parents' divorce, but I know that God will work all things out for the good of those who love him. I know it's all good. You know, oh man, I, I, you know, my dad, when I was a kid, he did these terrible things and now I'm so screwed up as an adult trying to navigate through all this. But I know I have a heavenly father, you know, and I shouldn't be so selfish to want an earthly father too. Uh, man, I am struggling with resentment and insecurity because that person broke up with me and I'm gonna, you know, I'm pretty angry about this, but I know that somewhere out there beneath the shining stars, God has someone for me. Hopefully they're cuter than the last one. Probably not. Maybe I need to get a Tinder account. I don't know, you know, like, you know, and it's, it's not that those truths from the Bible aren't true. It's how they're presented. They're presented in a way to be a defense mechanism. What we're calling faith is what psychologists and therapists would call denial. We're spiritualizing our inability to process. So is that what Jesus is asking me to do? And if you read the teachings of Jesus, the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Denying reality is not faith. Denying reality is avoiding any situation where faith might actually be necessary. I wanna give us a much more biblical, functional, and realistic uh, definition of faith for today that is, all, Jesus is saying this all the time that I think is gonna be uh, helpful for tonight. Here's, here's how we're gonna define faith. Faith is the ability to process reality and trust Jesus simultaneously. Faith is the ability to process reality and trust Jesus simultaneously. Faith has two components. On one side, it's the ability to be able to look your situation dead in the eyes. 
without sugarcoating it, without finding a silver lining to it, without even knowing why or the answer or, you know, whatever. It's able to look at the situation dead in the eyes with full emotion, anger, grief, all the things that come with it, but then be able to look at Jesus dead in the eyes and be able to say, Jesus, in this, I still believe who you say you are. Jesus, in this, I still believe that you're going to do what you say that you're going to do. So how do we find faith like that when our lives are falling apart? Well, we're gonna look at a story from the Bible. So if you got a Bible, you got a phone, you got a Kindle Fire, you got an iPad, God bless the iPad people, you got a Nintendo DS, whatever you got, I want you to find Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, we're gonna start in, in verse 46. Here's what it says, and we got this screen, so, you know, you're fine. Uh, Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. Uh, When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All right, imagine the scene with me. So Jesus is getting pretty popular, right? And he's got his 12 goons, his 12 disciples, and they're walking by the side of the road and everyone wants a piece of Jesus. Everyone wants to hear Jesus teach. Everyone (laughs) wants to watch Jesus do a magic trick, right? And so everybody's kind of following. You got this huge crowd, thousands of people. They're trying to get a hold of Jesus. And as they're walking from one place to another on the side of the road, there's this homeless blind beggar and he just starts screaming. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He, he just starts screaming. Uh, now, I, I'm guessing that most of us at one point in our lives uh, have uh, had somebody come up to us and ask us for money. Maybe you've been there yourself. Um, I, you know, I, uh, where I live, just where my house is located, I, I got the privilege of being able to get to know a, a lot of wonderful men and women that will do exactly this. So sit on the side of the road and, and they'll ask for money. Um, and if you've ever had conversations uh, with people that do that, you know that very often uh, they don't, act the way or, or look the way society wants people to act and look, right? Uh, so they, they might not be dressed the way that society would want them to dress. They might have just a few outfits or one outfit so that's very worn down. They might not smell the way that society wants people to smell because if you don't have access to showers and you don't have, you know, uh, very often, not all the time, but very often, uh, they might be mentally challenged, whether that's from birth or whether that's from substances that happens over the course of time. So when you imagine Bartimaeus, it's easy to sugarcoat it, but don't do that. Imagine that times 20, because Bartimaeus was most likely blind from birth. Uh, Because he's homeless, that means he doesn't have a family that's willing to take care of him. So he's been out on the streets probably his whole life. And the reason he's screaming is because he's blind. He can't walk up to you and say, hey man, can I have 20 bucks? So instead he waits for people to walk by and just start screaming at them, hoping that someone would give him the time of day. So picture this guy, homeless, covered in dirt, maybe mentally challenged, ignored, seen as inconvenience and annoying because he's always yelling with zero social awareness. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, the people yelled at him. Shut up. You know, most of us wouldn't have the audacity to say be quiet. Instead, we just don't make eye contact and keep going. You've all done it at the Cavs game, whatever, fine. So we just keep walking. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. But when Jesus heard him, he stopped. Tell him to come here, he said. So they called the blind man, cheer up. They said, come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus was so excited that he threw aside his coat. He jumped up and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. My rabbi, 
the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Your faith. Instantly, the man could see. And he followed Jesus down the road. Jesus does the thing that no one thought was possible. This inconvenient, annoying dude, Jesus gives, he restores his sight. He can see. He has been healed. Now, here's why I chose this story, and this is, this is really important. If ever there was a guy that should have given up on life, it's got to be Bartimaeus, right? If ever there was a guy that should have thrown in the towel, given up all hope, it's got to be Bartimaeus. If ever there was a guy where we, if we're being honest, if we're being honest, we would look and say, I'm not sure that that guy's life is even like worth it. It's got to be Bartimaeus. But because he held on to faith, authentic faith, because he held on to hope, he was able to experience Jesus in a way that quite honestly, no one else in the crowd was able to experience Jesus. He got to be close to Jesus and his life is forever changed. And he was able to experience Jesus by doing three things. If you're a note taker, we got three points. My wife always tells me, Josiah, you ramble. You need like solid three points. So all you type A, one, two, three, that's what we're doing. He was able to experience Jesus, find authentic faith by doing three things. Here's the first one. Ready? He ignored the crowd. Number one, he ignored the crowd. And here's why. When you listen to the crowd, you're going to miss Jesus. When you listen to the crowd, you're going to miss Jesus. I uh, have a lot of friends, and I hear people all the time that will say things along the lines of, uh, Christianity is so closed-minded. Uh, Christianity is so hopelessly naive. Uh, Christianity is so heartless. Uh, you know, cr- Christianity doesn't know how to deal with, you know, the real things of life that are going on. And, and whenever I ask my friends, I'm like, all right, fair enough. Whenever I ask them, um, why do you think that? Why do you think that? 90% of the time, uh, they give me an answer along these lines. They'll say, well, my dad was a Christian and he was a jerk. Uh, my grandma was a Christian and she's dumb, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, I grew up in the Catholic church and they didn't know how to deal with blah, 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 blah. And I had a terrible experience when I was there. And that's your experience. I, I'm really sorry about that. I, I, I truly am. But here's what I've come to learn over the course of time. I started to realize 90% of my view of God is not shaped by a direct encounter with God. It's shaped by the crowd, of course, I'm ballparking there, but 90% of how I view Jesus is not from a direct encounter with Jesus. It's from people that claim to represent him. So how I understand God is through people that claim Christianity. How I understand God is maybe through my family. How I understand God, let's be honest, most of what we know about God is not from directly reading the Bible. It's from sermons and books and podcasts, whether good or bad. 90% Generally speaking, for most of us, my view of God is not shaped by a direct encounter with Jesus. It's an indirect encounter with people that claim to represent him. And the crowd, generally speaking, has kind of always had the same understanding of things. They've always been saying the same basic thing, which is this. The crowd tends to say, there's a direct correlation between how much God loves you and how your life is going. There's a direct correlation between how much God loves you and how your life is going. There's another story uh, where Jesus encounters a different blind man. Um, and it's it, the, his disciples, when they see the blind man, they ask the stupidest question ever. And they say, Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus, obviously someone messed up and got on God's bad side. 
That's why he's blind, right? So who messed up? Did he mess up or did his family mess up? And that's why God's curse has fallen upon him. You see the correlation? Because you have a physical limitation, because you're suffering, therefore God doesn't love you. Even the people that don't believe in God uh, will say things along the lines of, how could an all-loving God allow bad things to happen to people? You see the correlation. If God was really loving, he wouldn't let this happen, which explains in our story, when Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus, the crowd just responds, shut up. They're like, Bartimaeus, I hate to break it to you, buddy. You're not the kind of guy that God is interested in. I hate to break it to you, buddy. You're not the kind of guy our teacher wants to associate with. Do you know how we know that you're not the kind of guy that God wants to associate with? Because you're suffering. And if God really liked you, if God really loved you, if God really cared about you, you wouldn't be suffering. So shut up. Now let me ask you a question. Do you believe the crowd? Do you believe that the reason you're in pain is because God doesn't love you anymore? Maybe he's forgotten about you. Do you believe that the reason some version of suffering has entered in your life is because God doesn't see you? You're like in his blind spot. God's so focused on the people that have better lives than you do. God's so focused on the people that are better behaved than you are. And so the reason, he, he's just like punishing you for, you know, for not doing. I, sometimes, I, I'll be honest, because some of us in this room have followed Jesus for a long time. Uh, I get a little nervous uh, because sometimes we'll be talking about like, you know, talking about your family or your marriage or your mental health. And, and the, the thinking will go, well, if I can just find all the right spiritual practices, I can sidestep any version of suffering. If I can just find the right prayer life, the right Bible plan, the right church, the right, some of us, you've been church, church, church. Cause like, if I can just find the right spot, then I can sidestep anxiety. Then I can sidestep my, my kids struggling. Then I can sidestep, I can find my marriage is going to be perfectly fine. And what are we doing there? What are we doing there? It is true that the Bible is going to help with all these things. It's true that community is going to help with all these things, but that correlation is not a direct correlation. What are we doing? We're listening to the crowd. We're believing a false correlation between God's love and the quality of my life. And because we're listening to the crowd, we're missing Jesus in the process. Can I tell you why there's no way that this correlation can be true? Ready? Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. If ever there was a person that God the Father loved the most, it's got to be his own son, right? If ever there was a person that was on God's good side, <laughs> it's got to be Jesus, right? Yet Jesus wept. Yet Jesus bled. By any metric, Jesus uh, had a horrible life. Jesus went through honestly, the worst that humanity has to offer, but he didn't suffer because God hated him. Jesus suffered because he loves you. The reason Jesus came to earth was to like carve out a path, basically carve out a path of this world so that we don't have to live in suffering forever so that we can have an escape plan. So look, you can say a lot of things about God with a lot of sincerity and it's fair enough. You can say that you're mad at God, like fair enough. You can say that you think God is doing this the wrong way and he sh should have done a different way. I think those feelings are valid. Uh, you can say that you think God is weak. Um, I, a lot, plenty of people have said that. Here's the one thing you can't say about God with any sincerity if you know the story. You can't say that God doesn't care. 
Because a God who doesn't care would have never gone on the cross. A savior that didn't see you and your suffering would have never suffered himself. He didn't have to do that. A God who doesn't care about you would never bleed out for you. And a God that doesn't hate your pain would never try and rescue you from it. Look, if you're able to ignore the crowd, you won't find a God who's watching you from a distance, who's trying to get you to like prove some kind of religious point about how faithful you are. If you're able to ignore the crowd, you're gonna see a God who's trying to stand right next to you. A God who's going in front of you, a God who's going behind you, a God who's trying to literally, with you, take your cross and put it on his shoulders instead. But you have to ignore the crowd if you're going to experience that. So ignore the crowd. But here's the second thing we have to do. You have to hold on to the promise. Number two, you have to hold on to the promise. Uh, There's been a lot of work uh, done by sociologists and historians and people of that sort about how uh, our culture deals with pain and suffering in comparison to all the other cultures. And I love how uh, Dr. Tim Keller, he summarizes their conclusion uh, in his book. And here's his summary. He says, our uh, culture, Western American culture, raise your hand if you're an American or a Westerner, put it up. Yeah, what's up, right? Our culture, Western American culture is the worst culture at dealing with suffering in human history. We are always like completely caught off guard by it. And then he gives a couple examples. So Pico Iyer is a, is a journalist who wrote about the tsunami that happened in Japan in 2011. It took thousands of lives. And as he's like over there writing about this tsunami, he said this. He said, there is more confusion and outrage in California than there was in Japan about the Japanese tsunami. There's another doctor, Dr. Paul Brand, it was a surgeon, uh, not from the United States, who, who treated uh, leprosy patients in India. And if you know anything about the conditions in India, if you're on the lower class, you know, it, it can be absolutely brutal, absolutely terrible. Uh, but then after doing that for years and years and years, he moves back to the United States. And in his book about pain, here's what he writes about Americans. He says, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. And Jesus, uh, throughout the Bible, uh, God is getting at this all the time. And here's what God's always trying to say. He's saying, the more you've made your home in this world, the more suffering is going to destroy you. This is why Americans cannot handle suffering. The more you've made your home in this world, the more suffering is gonna destroy you. Every culture before us, every culture around us, whether true or false, has placed their hope in, in a different world, in the future. There's, there's kind of this universal understanding that this world is not all there is. So no matter what like religion you're a part of, there's this idea that uh, we live for another world. And yes, pain and suffering is gonna happen right here, but the best version of our lives is yet to come. But we are a secular culture. And you really say, I'm not a secular culture. I'm, I'm, you know, I believe in God. Well, here's, here's what I mean. Most people in America believe in God, but we're still a very, very secular culture. Meaning we believe in God, but we believe in the American dream more than God. You know, we believe in God, but we believe in the pursuit of happiness more than God. All my friends are always like, I don't believe in the American dream. I believe in the pursuit of happiness. I'm like, I'm pretty sure the founding, anyways, doesn't matter, <laughs> right? So we believe in that more than we believe in God. We're, 
well, kind of worldly. So, so growing up, that term's loaded. Growing up, when I heard, uh, I would hear people say, don't be worldly, don't be worldly. And when I thought of, you know, being worldly, I thought like, don't do a strip, go to the strip club, you know, don't do drugs, don't watch the unrated, you know, version of Deadpool, don't listen to Doja Cat, you know, like, that was like my idea of like being worldly. But in the Bible, being worldly is, is much broader than that, much broader than that. All the Bible means by being worldly is making your home here in this world, by placing your identity and your hope and you know, your, who you are, placing it right here. So if your identity is in your family, then when your family falls apart, so will you. No matter how healthy your family is, it, if your hope is in your physical health, then when you start to lose your physical health, you won't just lose your body, but your soul. You will start to decay. If your security comes from, I don't know, let's say your ability to, prov- to provide an income. Then when you lose your prov- uh, ability to provide, you will become tremendously insecure. Uh, here's one uh, my generation struggles with. God bless us. <laughs> if your hope comes from one day having perfect mental health, overcome, overcome all anxiety, overcome all insecurity, overcome, you're gonna be incredibly selfish in your interactions with other people. Because other people are constantly imposing on your perfect mental health. So I got to cut my mom off because she's toxic. So I can never talk to her ever again. Right? Don't get me wrong. Even if your hope is in the future, pain is horrible. Even the most godly people I know call out to God in their pain and, and anger. And it, like, it's still horrible. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. They don't lose themselves in the process. Right? Here's what I'm trying to say. If your crisis is not just destroying your life, but it's destroying your soul, it's probably because you've made your home in this world. If your suffering is not just wrecking your emotions, you, we have to process, we have to get it out. But it's not just wrecking your emotions, it's wrecking your entire sense of self. It's probably because your sense of self is rooted in something here. And if your pain doesn't test your faith, but it actually strips it away, it's probably because your faith is in this kingdom, not the kingdom of God that Jesus has come to build at one level or another. Jesus is saying, here's the deal. Your world is going to be destroyed no matter what. In this world, you will have trouble. Some of us, our worlds are being destroyed right now. Some of us, it's going to happen 60 years from now, but sooner or later, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. In this world, you will have trouble. Your world is going to be destroyed no matter what, but your soul doesn't need to be lost in the process. That ball is in your court. That's up to you. Jesus wants to walk with you through that. The question becomes, where does my hope lie? But not a general cliche Hobby Lobby hope. Bartimaeus holds on to a very specific hope because his hope actually has a name. Here's the third thing that uh, Bartimaeus does for authentic faith. Step number three, call out his name. Bartimaeus calls out his name. Can, can, I, uh, can I tell you why I picked this story? So a few months ago, um, I, was, uh, I was reading this story. And to be honest, b- before uh, I would read stories like this, and you hate to say it, but like, after a while, you hear some stories of Jesus and you're like, all right, healing a blind man, pocket change for Jesus. Jesus, do something more interesting than that. You know, like you're kind of like bored about it. Um, so I'd always kind of breezed right by this. But uh, a couple months ago, I was reading this and something struck me that I had I'd never noticed before. And here's what it is. This man doesn't just call out, Jesus, have mercy on me. He doesn't call it, just call out, Jesus, heal me. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I started to think, all right, why would this blind, homeless man 
call Jesus the son of David. Uh, Son of David in the Bible is a pretty specific and niche term. It comes from the Hebrew Bible that they, that they would have had. But when, when you read about people, especially at this point, Jesus' interactions with people, they call him teacher, they call him rabbi. Sometimes they even call him Lord, but very, very rarely are you ever gonna say some, someone calling him the son of David. So why, why does this blind man call him that? Well, this term son of David comes from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter nine, it talks about how one day this savior is going to come. One day this Messiah is going to come and everyone who calls on his name is going to be rescued. Everything that was wrong is going to be made right. And it says that this savior is going to come from the lineage of King David, who was one of their old kings. He was going to be a son of David. And then Isaiah chapter 42 goes on to talk about what this son of David was going to do. And all the people at the time kind of, you know, would read this. It says this, uh, Isaiah says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wrong and you will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. Bartimaeus was probably blind since he was a little kid. So as a kid, he knew that the quality of his life was going to be horrible. He's never going to be able to work a job. He was never going to have a home. He was never going to have any money. And one of the most common places uh, for beggars to beg was by the temple. And so as a kid, Bartimaeus probably decided, all right, I'm going to go over to the temple because if anyone's going to give me a quarter, maybe it's those guys. So he goes to the temple. And back in the day, uh, the pastor or the teacher would actually come outside to the steps of the temple and that's, that's where they would teach. And that teacher came out that day And that day, Bartimaeus heard about a savior. The teacher taught from Isaiah. And he said that one day, this son of David is gonna come. He's gonna fix everything that's wrong. He's gonna bring justice to the oppressed. And he is going to open the eyes of the the blind. And little Bartimaeus heard that promise and he held on to it. And he knew that the savior probably wasn't gonna come in his lifetime. And he knew that his life was going to be grueling. Like there's, there's no sidestep in that. But he never forgot that one day he was going to be able to see. He never forgot that one day the Savior is coming and he never let that promise go. And guess what? His life was horrible. Horrible. Everyone walked by him. Everyone thought God hated him. He had no trajectory, no future. But when the son of David walked by, Bartimaeus recognized him and he called out his name. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd responds and they go, shut up, dude. You're obviously not the kind of person that don't bother the teacher. God's not interested in you. But Bartimaeus says, no, 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 I know him. I know him. I've known him my whole life. I've known him since I was a little kid and I know that he hasn't just come to rescue the world. He's come to rescue me. He came for me because he told me that he was coming for me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus heard his voice, do you know what it said? When Jesus heard his voice, he stopped. There's some of us in this room. I I need to hear this all the time. So I'm guessing somebody else needs to hear this too. Listen to me. 
You are not too inconvenient for God. No matter what your brain says, no matter what the crowd says, you're not too inconvenient for God. You're not too broken for God. You're not too needy for God. You're not too screwed up for God. You're not too emotional for God. You're not too inconvenient for God. He wants you so bad. So when Bartimaeus looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I've been waiting for you my whole life. Jesus looks at him and says, no, I've been waiting for you since the beginning of eternity. I came here for you. You're the reason I came. You're the reason I showed up. I know who you are. You are precious to Jesus. Look, even though Jesus didn't cause your pain, he sees you in it. Even though God didn't create a world of suffering, he's come to pull us out of it. You belong to him. He wants you. When I was about uh, seven years old, uh, I went to the store with my mom. Uh, We were having a birthday party for somebody. And so we went to... uh, RSVP in Akron. Always have a very good experience there. And uh, I'll never forget, my mom was in the checkout with all the streamers and whatnot. And uh, at the store, for whatever reason, at the front of the store, they had um, like big bags of sand, kind of like bags of like dog food, but it was, it was full of colored sand, party sand, and they were stacked up. And so I did literally what any seven-year-old kid in the universe would do. And I just started climbing on the sand. You know, it was, it was kind of away from my mom. And uh, I'll never forget, this is like a core memory for me. This lady who didn't work at the store, she was just like a customer, I guess. This lady came up to me and she just started yelling at me. And she said, what's wrong with you? Get down right there. What, what's wrong with you? And, I, you know, at this point in my life, I still thought every adult was intelligent. So I was like trying to like, I was trying to like, listen, get down from there. What are you doing right now? And you know, I, I just freeze because you don't know what to do. And she looks at me and says, you're a bad kid. Where's your mom? You're a bad kid. She's raising bad kids. And my mom kind of see what's happening out of the corner of her eye because she's making a scene in front of the whole store. So my mom sees what's happening and she leaves all her stuff and she just runs over to me and she just shields me with her arm. And my mom, and this lady just keeps saying to my mom, you've raised a bad kid. You have a bad kid. You have a bad kid. And so my mom's trying to get us out of the store and she's like trying to walk me to the car. So we're out in the parking lot. This lady leaves the store and follows us. She's following us the whole way to her car. You're raising bad kids. You're a bad kid. You're a bad kid. And I'll never forget, my mom like opened the door of the car and uh, she was like p- trying to get me in the car as fast as she could. And right before the door closed, the last thing I heard is, at least I'm not raising bad kids. And then it closed. And my mom, you know, <laughs> my mom locked the car and just kept driving. We're driving for like five minutes and you know, like <laughs> the tears start coming down a little bit because I, I, you just don't know how to process that as a kid, you know? So I'm just hearing this. I'm like, I, I guess I am a bad kid, you know, and for kids, you know, sometimes it starts a little weepy and it gets a little more than that, you know, so, so I just start crying and my, my mom is like fuming, but she like settles down and we're about seven minutes in the drive. I'm just saying, I'm a bad kid. You're like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What did I do? I don't know what I did. I don't know what I did. And my mom uh, puts her hand on my shoulder and she says, Josiah, Josiah, don't listen to her. Don't listen to you. You're my kid. Don't listen to her. Don't listen to you. You're my kid. 
Listen to me. God has come from heaven to earth to tell you one thing. You're my kid. You are God's kid. And God hates your pain because you are God's kid, like any loving parent would. And God hates what people are saying to you because you are God's kid, like any loving parent would. And God hates what's going on in your head because you are God's kid, like any loving parent would. You are God's kid. And God hates your pain so much. You know what it says? It says in Psalm chapter 56, it says that God hates your pain so much that he captures every tear and he puts them in a bottle. You're like, what the heck does that even mean? That's not even helpful. Well, here's why. Why would God capture every tear? Because he knows where those tears came from. If we've learned anything from psychologists, it's this. We don't even know where our tears come from. And certainly the people around us don't know where our tears come from. But God knows where every tear comes from. He knows where each and every one. He knows that your dad left you when you were a kid. And so now you're here trying to like figure out the family and trying to figure out how to like navigate this whole thing. But you don't know how to do it because you never, you know, you never had an example. He knows that your relationship is falling apart and you don't know how to bring it together because you don't really know what love looks like. And maybe this was like, this relationship was the first time that you ever actually felt something and now it's being stripped away from you. He knows that. He knows about the trauma. You know, what, what happens with trauma is it happens when you're young or it happens whenever it happens and then we bury it down and we can't think of it or abuse, we bury it down, but it comes up in all these different ways and we, we don't know where it's coming. He knows that that's where that's coming from. He knows. He knows about the anxiety. He knows that it is 20 times harder for you to make good decisions than it is for the person next to you. You know, while everyone's saying, dude, why can't you just suck it up? Why can't you just get out of bed? Why can't you just go into work like a normal? He knows that it's, it's brutalizing. It's everything that happens in your head. It's not as straightforward as, as that. And he knows that. He knows about the sexual attractions that no one else knows about. And now you feel completely isolated because of that. And you can't say it out loud. He knows about what happens in secret. And the reason you feel so much shame and you don't feel worthy to have a relationship with God because of these things that you do in private. He knows about the doubt, you know, and you can't get your head and your heart wrapped around who God is. And so you always feel like less than everybody else. He knows where the tears come from. Every tear you've ever had, every insecurity that's ever gone through you, every anxious thought, he knows where everyone has come. So he grabbed every tear and put them in a bottle. Why? Why would he put them in a bottle? Because one day a savior is going to come. One day, the son of David is going to come a Messiah. And he's going to take that bottle and he's going to take it off the shelf and he's going to open it up. And one by one, he's going to go through every tear you've ever had and he's going to reverse the cause of each of them. Do you know, you want to know what else the Bible says about the Savior, the Son of David? Yeah, it says he's going to open the eyes of the blind. You know what else it says? It says he's going to set the captive free. <laughs> free from what? All this, you know? Free from what? Addiction? Shame? Your past? You know what else it says about the Son of David? It says he's going to comfort the brokenhearted. Who's the brokenhearted? Probably people who lost someone, you know? Rather than people that don't have anyone else to do this with because they were taken away. He's going to remove every insecurity 
at every self-doubt? Could you imagine going through life, never thinking again what anybody else is thinking about you because you're so free and you're so secure in who you are that you don't have to go to bed at night thinking about the dumb thing that you said. He's gonna eradicate all anxiety and all depression. He will heal every sickness and disease from cancer to disablement to autoimmune. He will bring justice to the oppressed from racism to poverty to sex trafficking, all of that undone. He will be a friend to the lonely. He'll be a father to the fatherless. And the ones of us that have gotten screwed over, he will be the thing that you've always needed. He will quote, wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these are gone forever because he lives. Because Jesus Christ has come into this earth to pull us out of it, to rescue it, to build a different kingdom. Because the Savior, the Son of David, was buried in our sufferings so that we wouldn't have to suffer forever. So that there's another side of this. Jesus was ripped to shreds. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, he was ripped to shreds. And the scriptures say, but it's by his wounds that we're healed. Like that's how he puts us back together. He suffocated in our tears so that one day tears would be no more. But because Jesus trusted the heart of his father, yes, Jesus was led straight into death. Yes, Jesus was led straight into the cross, straight into the grave. But because he trusted his father, his father raised him to life. And the promise of the scriptures is that if we hold on to Jesus and we call out his name, God will raise you up too. You will have a second life. You will have a new life. And yes, yes, you might have to hit the grave first, but that didn't seem to be a problem for Jesus because he lives. The promise of the scripture stands that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. So hold on. Hold on. Because he's holding on to you. It's not a wishful thing. It's not a naive thing. It's the realest thing that's ever happened. And God is calling you. He's calling you. Listen, there's some, I know. There's some in this room, you've never taken the hand of Jesus Christ before. And today's your day. It is. Jesus is talking to you. He's talking so specifically to you. You feel that in your chest. And he's saying, listen, I've come to rescue you. Everybody's been ignoring you, everybody. But I, you are the reason that I came. Take his hand. Others of us, listen, man, we might have had a relationship with Jesus for a really long time, but we've like moved past it. And we're like, we're on to the deeper stuff or whatever. And Jesus is trying to say, listen, I'm not asking you to do this for me. I'm asking you to do this with me. You know, if there was like, <laughs> if there was something to do this week, you know, if there was like some kind of practical like out of this whole thing, here's, here's what I think it would be. Would you, while you're processing the pain and while you're crying, you know, I, I, I tend to get angry more than anything. While you're angry, would you just let Jesus sit next to you? Would you process the pain in Jesus' presence with him sitting right there? Because here's the deal, man. You're going to suffer either way. Life's going to go bad either way. It really will. But this way you have a savior with you. He will walk with you. He will hold your hand. He will guide you through it. And you will find life and life to the full. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know 
<laughs> my father holds the future and life is always worth living. No matter how grueling, no matter how, how many people we lose along the way, no matter how dark of a turn it takes, no matter how messed up we are in the head, life is always worth living because Jesus Christ lives. And if we hold on to him, we'll be able to live too. Jesus has come for you. So will you take his hand? Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, man, would you meet us here, right here? We're going to go into a time of worship, God, and I just pray that maybe for some of us, maybe the first time, for others of us, maybe the thousandth time, but would you let us see your heart? Would you let us see that when you look at us, you don't see what the world around us sees? You don't even see what we see. When you look at us, you, you see your kid <laughs> that you made and a kid that you're trying to rescue. And I pray that we can trust that. God, some of us are in the thick of it right now. And it was stories I can't even imagine or relate to. But God, you are with them. And you can't imagine and you can relate. And so I just pray that you would sit so closely and you'd hold your kids so closely. Let us call upon your name. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God, I pray if there's anyone in this room that is not saved right now, let us call upon your name. Come meet us here. Because in this world we will have trouble, but we can take heart for you have overcome. In your name, amen. Once again, seriously, thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you have any questions about anything that we talked about, please don't hesitate at all to reach out. Uh, you can shoot a direct message to our Instagram, but I'd also love to give you my personal email. It's J-O-B-O-G-U-E at graceohio.org. And if you shoot an email to that, I'd love to talk with you about anything going on at, at all. Once again, we'd love to see you in person at Collective. We meet at 754 Gent Road, Fairlawn, Ohio at seven o'clock every Thursday night. And we'd hope to see you there.